Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, free speech and college campuses. And Richard, on the week that we're recording this, uh, Christina Hoff Summers, the conservative scholar, was shouted down during an appearance at the law school at Lewis and Clark College. And this is of a piece with what we've been seeing over and over again the last few years in, in terms of hostility, um, often disruptive, occasionally violent towards conservative speakers on college campuses. One thinks particularly of people like Charles Murray or Heather McDonald that have endured other incidents like these. And Richard, it's probably notable that both sides here, both the speakers and the people protesting, usually end up invoking the First Amendment in their defense. So, so why don't we start there? How does the First Amendment apply on college campuses? And to what degree are there salient differences, for instance, between public and private universities? Well, I mean, the first thing to ask is how the First Amendment applies more generally before you get to a particular location. And generally, the principle is that Congress may mail a law abridging the freedom of speech does not mean what it says in a literal fashion, uh, because what it says is you can protect the freedom of speech, but all sorts of freedom are not themselves worthy of protection. And to figure out which ones are and which ones are not, generally speaking, what one does is revert to a kind of a classical liberal theory, at least traditionally. Uh, so you can block speech which engages in misrepresentation. Uh, you could block speech that engages in defamation. You can block speech which is a breach of a trade secret. You can block speech which is an effort to try to form some kind of a cartel. You can block speech which is essentially abusive to other kinds of individuals. And you start ticking off the various kinds of cases in which the state can get involved. And then when you say, okay, they're involved in these areas, can they do anything that they want with respect to its regulation? And the answer to that question is no, because you're always worried about the fact that even if you come within one of these permissible headings, there'll be a classic case of overkill. So the worlds of defamation, misrepresentation, confidentiality are all subject to elaborate kinds of exceptions, qualifications, and so forth. But the core of the First Amendment, when you get through with all of this stuff is on the other principle about the things that you cannot do to block speech. And the single most important variation on that is no matter how offensive the speech is to somebody else, uh, the offense itself does not give that person the warrant to shut down people with whom he strongly disagrees. If you apply that principle universally, then everybody can say their piece. If you try to do the opposite principle and say that great offense is in fact the justification for shutting speech down, then you run into two problems. One of them is you're going to have to decide which speech is truly offensive and which is not, and that's going to get you into viewpoint discrimination. So the American left can say anything opposed to progressive ideals we can shut down, and the American right can say anything opposed to organization, organized religion we can shut down. Both of those are exceedingly dangerous positions because you can't maintain new viewpoint neutrality. The second point is the huge moral hazard issue. If you allow offense, seriously felt offense, to shut somebody down, then the optimal strategy for everybody who disagrees with somebody else is to work themselves into a heated lather so that they're so angry they can barely speak as they clench their knuckles and they all turn red. And the last thing we want to do is to create a doctrine which gives you greater rights by taking extremist positions. So the rule has to be pretty much uniform as a public matter. 
And the case that did this, Texas against Johnson, was a case in which some people burned the American flag under common law, correctly so. Burning a flag is a kind of expressive speech. Um, and the fact that somebody else doesn't like it, five to four, good opinion by Justice Scalia, said no warrant for shutting this stuff down. Now, if you start moving to a university campus, how do the rules change? Well, at least as a first approximation, not at all. Uh, so if somebody is going to get up and start to speak on a public place inside a university and somebody else wants to shout him down uh, as an abusive matter, they can't do it. The only difference is that the university, as owner of the property, can exclude somebody under the rules of trespass uh, so that they're not allowed to speak at all. But if you're a public university or a private university and you start having strong viewpoint discrimination, you lose your credibility, not constitutionally, but intellectually, as a place where free and open debate can take place. To my mind, the distinction between the public and private universities are less important than many other people think on a whole variety of issues, including race preferences and affirmative action. I tend to think if voluntary institutions want to do something like have speech codes, state institutions can imitate them within limits. So I don't want to stress over much the distinction, which is generally thought to be very important on the ground that government actors are covered by the speech clauses, whereas private actors are not. When you get inside the classroom, at this particular point, if somebody shites you down, uh, typically you're in breach of the local rules so they can evict you or expel you under the circumstances. And also, since you have no warrant from the owner of the property, um, your particular action is interference with advantageous relationships. If it's a threat of force, you should go to jail. If it's simply shouting somebody down, there are probably lesser sanctions that should be imposed upon you. Uh, and so what happens is on a viewpoint neutral basis, what they did to Christina Huff Summers is essentially indefensible. Those people want to talk about why women are oppressed. They're perfectly free to organize their own forum. They're perfectly free to invite her to debate. They're perfectly free to circulate handbills outside. What they're not allowed to do is to disrupt the operation. And so I think once we have that understanding, all the refinements that we have to worry about with the defamation cases and the right of privacy cases don't matter. It's the fundamental norm that the fact that you disagree with somebody gives you the right to dissent, but it doesn't give you the right to shut them down. Let's talk about the cultural dynamics here. You're a faculty member at NYU and at the University of Chicago. You also spend time at Stanford, although you're not a faculty member there, and you speak regularly at college campuses all across the country. With that perspective, when it comes to these kinds of occurrences, shutting down speakers, do you think we're talking about a relatively small group of colleges where this illiberal attitude is allowed to flourish and they get all the attention, or is there a broader sort of rot going on in American higher ed? That's a very hard question to answer because a lot of it depends upon the definition that you give of rot. If the definition of rot is essentially cases where people develop this exotic theory of the First Amendment, that speech which offends my core values and undermines my self-respect is to be treated as though it were violence, so I can use violence of the other kind, i.e. beat you up and shut you down. I do not think that's a majority position, and I even want to go one step further. It takes only a tiny minority of organized students to shut somebody down on a campus where 95% of the students disagree with their particular behaviors. Uh, and so the tragedy in this particular situation is that the tail is always in a position uh, to basically wag the dog when we want it the other way around. And what universities have to do 
is to make it very clear that this is a mortal threat to their institutional freedom and to expel students or to suspend students, depending on the severity of the offense, refer them over to criminal authorities for prosecution if it should warrant that, on the grounds that you cannot let tiny minorities become majorities by abusive behaviors. Now, on another side, the question about whether there's a rotten university, it's again very complicated. Huge numbers of universities, highly heterogeneous in terms of their organization structures and beliefs. Uh, but I will say the following thing, which I think is true. There are too many universities today where the political imbalance on the faculty is so enormous uh, that what it does is it tends to encourage the kind of beliefs that lead students to engage in these extreme behaviors. So if you were to look at the Ivy League schools or at Stanford or many of the other other places, um, what you discover is the faculty split amongst people in the humanities and law will be something like 90-10 or 95-5 in some places, in some department, there will be no Republicans or Libertarians of any sort. And I think that this is an extremely dangerous type of situation and that these universities have to consciously understand uh, that they're kidding themselves if they believe they get a 100 to 1 nothing mix because they're applying neutral standards of excellence, that what they're doing is they're letting their political beliefs essentially interfere with that. I try to place a large number of classical liberal conservative students, and there are just so many places where you run up against an iron wall of hostility and makes it exceedingly difficult for these people to get jobs. Uh, they are often told, please don't list the fact that you have conservative affiliations on your resume because somebody will use that as a flag to disqualify you. And I think these universities should be under a very deep obligation to diversify their faculty because if they don't, then they're going to start teaching classes and it's going to be a crusade. And the crusade will lead some students to become militant left and some people to become obnoxiously so. And what you don't do is to see enough effort on the part of these individuals to say, look, we think they're respectable beliefs on the other side. So I can recall countless number of occasions where, you know, you start to talk about topics that become verboten like global warming, and you take a skeptical position either on the lawsuits that are brought or on the underlying scientific phenomena, and there are people who just look at you with stunned disbelief that you can say anything of that particular sort. And it's not as though you can argue it's discussable. The science, the law has already been settled, and you're just on the wrong side of history. And universities that have mono chromatic cultures are universities that subject to this. And so I think it's not only important to do what they've done at the University of Chicago, which is to say we don't believe in trigger warnings. I think it's actually important for these faculties and a whole variety of decisions to recognize how politicized they've become and to take conscious steps to go against type by admitting into their halls people who will give them an honest intellectual fight for their money. And, and the thing that frightens me so much is that most of the people who are willing to stand up. They're like me and Christopher. Christine Summers and so forth, they tend to be on the older side of the spectrum. Much harder for somebody who's 30 or 35 is going to try to spend the next 40 years in a university uh, uh, to incur the wrath of their various members. And indeed, on the global warming issues, I've talked to many people who said, well, they just resigned from their faculty so they could be free to deal with this issue because if they thought they remained a member of the faculty, the social pressures would become too great. And this is very, very disturbing. People who want to romanticize these protests will often analogize them to the heyday of campus activism in the 1960s. Um, you weren't quite around for that, but at the risk of outing you a bit, your first faculty appointment was at USC in 1968. Yeah, but I was a student right? in 1960. I was on campus for all this stuff. 
Okay, so you're you're drawing on 50 years of experience here, more yeah. on, on college campuses. How would you compare how liberal activism on college campuses has changed in that time? Well, I mean, it, it's very difficult because it's always been a question of ebb and flow. There is no question that the first years that I taught at the University of Southern California and the last two years that I spent at the Yale Law School had activities which are very similar to the ones that you had today. I can still recall what the Yale when I was at the Yale Law School, all the hubbub around Bobby Seale, who had done some pretty despicable things, but had huge amounts of campus support. One of the things that sort of shaped my view about legal education almost forever is I attended a meeting in which many of the left-wing students berated some very difficult, very distinguished faculty members on their inability to join full bore in the civil rights uh, movement against these other people, taking strong left-wing positions. And what the faculty did was they kind of sat there and they didn't say anything in their own defense. And I vowed at the ripe old age of 24, nobody was ever going to bully me like that if I became a faculty member. Uh, because the moment you start yielding to that, then you forfeited any claim to excellence by virtue of the achievements that you've had. And so you have to kind of stand up to that. And it slowly passed in 1970 when I was at USC. We had the parrot speak in Cambodia and we had the Kent State stuff and the whole campus went up on edge. Uh, the classes were canceled. Uh, the then president of USC was a man named Norman Topping, an extremely shrewd doctor. And we said, why are you letting him? We asked him, uh, letting these students get off without their examinations. And this is what he told us. He said, look, they're protesting now. If we tell them they don't have to take their exams, some of them are going to go to the beach. If we tell them that they have to take their exams, they're going to keep on protesting. I want them off the campus. I'm willing to give up this particular thing. And sure enough, he was right. Uh, the moment it was clear that the exams were no longer an issue, large numbers of students defected from the movement. It lost its kind of steam. And uh, we managed to survive that. And in the fall of 1970s, when everybody comes back, I had one of the strongest and most diligent classes ever. It's as though the entire spring of 1970 experience was cathartic. And you then go through periods of relatively good feelings where this doesn't come up. Uh, but the mood on campus is now is much uglier than it was, say, over 10 years ago. And now why is it? Well, in his own way, Obama was, I thought, a very divisive figure. It's not that he had that tone, uh, but his willingness to make excuses for people who committed violent acts to basically prejudge the Michael Brown situation and the Trayvon Martin situation when it turned out on the facts he was probably pretty clearly wrong on both of those two cases. What that did is it legitimated much more fevered attacks from people who were on that side. And what you did is you had a real decline in racial relations. You know, then turn out you get Donald Trump. Well, this man is not the most tactful fellow on earth. He makes a series of huge blunders in the way in which he speaks about Charlottesville and so forth. And so you now rev this up again. And what we're seeing now is a situation where people who are not from the universities but can come to university campuses often want to make us a battleground in which they can fight out their things. And what you really need to do is to get people who can temper this stuff down, keep the outsiders, particularly the armed outsiders, off of campus and out of public parks and facilities in the effort to try to restore an equilibrium. It's very difficult to do so because more than there was in the 1960s, um, there's a more of a polarization in American politics between left and right. There's no overlap between the two parties anymore, even on conventional kinds of politics. Uh, but it's also clear uh, that the left has gone a lot further to the left and the right has gone somewhat further to the right. And this ignoring gap is between those two particular sides. And that makes it very difficult to figure out how you get reconciliation with the middle. 
oddly enough, the most encouraging feature on this is the willingness of certain Democrats to recognize that the Dodd-Frank bill went overboard with respect to its regulation of mid-sized banks. And the fact that Elizabeth Warren is is opposed to the reform proposal is the strongest reason to endorse it. She's always wrong on consumer affairs. And if you can get those kinds of middle grounds in there, then you may be able to amend the social fabric. Uh, But what happens is if you get deep political polarization, the probability of some extremists taking really ugly actions, including disrupting speeches or even further, will start to increase. And, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about that. But for the most part, I can say truthfully, I speak in many campuses at many times, and I've never run into that thing personally, for which I am eternally grateful to all the audience before whom I've spoken. There are a lot of different axes being ground amongst these protesters. But one of the common threads that you tend to see is identity politics. The Christina Hoff Summers protesters, for instance, invoked everything from Black Lives Matter to trans rights to the wage gap. But there is a constant assertion that these students are, to use their own locution, marginalized. Does that claim ring true to you? Well, I wonder. I mean, take one of the conflicts which has been extremely bitter, which is the cake master's cake. Uh, The gay rights movement is extremely well organized, highly powerful, very heavily funded, backed uniformly in the courts, and they're the ones who are claiming exclusion. Whereas on the other hand, the evangelical Christians whose only sin in life is not to bake wedding case, are now treated as a devil incarnate, and they find it extremely difficult to get traction in the general political arena. And so one of the things that so troubles me about this is that the most powerful groups are the ones who are always pleading marginalization, and so they then say is we've got additional liberties that we can take with respect to everybody else. And I don't think that they're marginalized. I think their opponents often are. But the basic rule on discourse is I don't care if you're in the margin or in the center, The general rules of civility, the general rules against violence apply to all of you. If you think you're marginalized, it's time for you to organize and to work and to speak more vigorously than you've previously done. And it's also, and I think something these groups have to recognize, is maybe the reason why they're marginalized on some of these issues is that they're wrong. So, you know, you mentioned trans rights, you mentioned women's status, you mentioned the wage gap. I mean, one of the things that's so tragic is if you ask any of the people who protest the wage gap to explain how do you deal with that when you start to normalize or control for various kinds of variables, they wouldn't even know what the question is, let alone what the answer is. To give you an idea of how informed this gets, the California legislature, when it passed its new comparable worth bill, sort of announced that a white male earned roughly three times that of a Hispanic female, and they attributed it all to discrimination. There was nothing about occupational training, job differences, skill levels, hours of work, nothing to control for anything. And if you just look at gross data in that particular fashion, it's easy to become indignant. But if you actually require somebody to sit down and figure out what's going on, then you start to slow down. The most important thing for these groups to do is to realize that they too can be wrong like the rest of us. And in fact, one of the rules that I try to give myself in arguments is as follows. Whenever I listen to somebody with whom I disagree, I try to find the single strongest point that they made and figure out how it will alter my own views on a variety of issues. And if you do that consistently, you find yourself shifting a little bit here or a little bit here. And so I'm still a libertarian, but I'm much less of a radical libertarian than I was in 1968 because I've lost too many arguments on the other side. 
And I think progressives and lefties have to do exactly the same thing, figure out where they're vulnerable and then try to fix it up. And the other thing, of course, in my case, is when I get into one of these debates, as I often do, I don't take an apologetic tone. I've been around this business now as an academic for 50 years. I do have fairly strong opinions. I'm willing to allow them to be changed. What I'm not willing to do is to allow them to be shut down or shouted down. Final question that I'll give you, the long-term trajectory of this trend that we're seeing on college campuses. I'll just do my job as an interlocutor and create an oversimplified dichotomy for you, Richard. Um, Among the people who are put off by these kinds of protests, there are broadly speaking two kinds of reactions. One is sort of dismissive and basically says, well, good luck trying this in the real world. Your college might indulge this, but your employer won't, your partner won't, et cetera. The other view sees it as a little more metastatic and and says we have to be careful because a lot of these political sensibilities and these affected fragilities are seeping out into the corporate world. They're also increasingly infecting K through 12 education. In other words, theory here is that the contagion is sort of spreading. Uh, Which one of those views is closer to your own? I would say both are true. Um, On the one hand, with respect to individuals, many of whom are sort of uh, sympathizers but not hardcore in any of these particular movements, the dose of reality starts to bring them back. As my father and mother used to tell me a long time ago, it's amazing how conservative people come when they have to make monthly payments on their mortgage because all of a sudden they realize that they're not the same free spirits that they were in college and that their neglect of their occupational duties have real practical consequences. But on the other hand, there is no question that you start seeing this seep in. It's most vigorous and visible in dealing with the sort of the new companies, all of them are deeply left-wing companies. So, you know, Facebook and Zuckerberg and you start looking at Google and the way in which they run their organization and so on. Um, You see cases in which they're literally willing to drum out of their organizations anybody who uh, basically says something that they would call a vicious stereotype. And the stereotype canard is extremely difficult to fight because suppose somebody were to say, if you look at the distribution on the curves, what you see is that the distribution for males and females with respect to certain mathematical skills, they're both bell-shaped curves, but the variance is bigger on the male and the median is slightly higher. And that means that the upper tail, you get a difference. This then gets translated into all women are biologically inferior when it comes to coding. And of course, that's not what's being said. If you allow people to do those gross oversimplifications, you will fan the fire. And it's even worse if you got a guy earning $200 million a year as the head of Google who buys into that kind of intellectual claptrap. Uh, so what I've always said is these companies are really good on the science, the mass, the metrics, the probability distribution. And one of the things that they have to do is to apply the same degree of seriousness when they are dealing with social issues as when they're dealing with technical issues. But we see, in fact, a very sharp move in the opposite direction. Um, You see it on the willingness to uh, buy into theories about global warming because it's the way we protect your corporate identity and so forth. Um, You see this with the affection towards solar power, which is not simply generalizable as a universal fool. Fuel, you see it in lots of particular cases. So the answer is it really matters. There was a time when large corporations were mainly Republican. Today it's split down the middle, and the more visible and active ones tend to be Democratic. And 
they tend to believe mixing politics with their business is pretty good business. Most conservative guys understand it's extraordinarily dangerous and extraordinarily unwise to do so. So they tend to hold back on it, which means you get this funny imbalance in the public space. So yes, there is socialization for individuals. And no, it turns out that this stuff can really spread because we have a number of highly influential people whose judgment on this issue I do not trust, but whose behavior nonetheless continues in ways that I wish they would stop. Thank you. All right. All right. Thank you, Richard, and uh, thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.